0: section eleven of six radical thinkers by john McCunn. this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela nagami chapter three the cobdenite doctrines of trade and non-intervention part three it is anything but easy to say whether such fears are well founded let those pronounce who know the facts of the commercial world still more let those who are competent to forecast the commercial future one may hazard the opinion that cobden would not have been disquieted by them so firm was his faith in cheapness so complete was his confidence that england could afford to go upon her own way in indifference to what the rest of the world might do and yet it is as well that those who have all and even more than all Cobden's optimism should bear in mind that it is not merely over protection as a commercial policy that the gospel of cheapness has to win its victory. What it really has to encounter is protection in alliance with the masterful and ambitious spirit of nationality which has been going on from strength to strength since Cobden's day. But of course, it is not in regard to foreign markets only that anxieties have arisen rightly or wrongly yet very genuinely the fear has entered into many minds that the policy of free imports by the killing or the crippling of home industries unable to hold their own in the battle of cheapness is hastening the coming of the day when employment may fail now cobdenites have never failed to see that some of a nation's industries may be crippled or even killed by free imports they have viewed the possibility with calmness not because they denied the fact but because they were content with the compensations their equanimity has usually rested upon the economic commonplace that when labour is displaced from one industry this only means that it will move to other industries within the country in which it can be applied with more effect nor is the process the less really matter for rejoicing because it may have its unpleasant incidents and if it should happen that this result does not ensue even if there should be a diminution of employment in a country labour is not nonplussed and left in idleness for can it not move to other shores there to apply itself with more effect under that international division of labour toward which even insular free trade is a step in this case the world will be the gainer the world will be the gainer because it is thus that labour will feel its way to those countries where it will be most effective and so the production of the world as a whole and the exchange of industrial products will be increased now it is easy to imagine a nation for which these compensations are entirely satisfactory even in the face of much crippling of special industries and even in the face of much displacement of labour for a nation might unquestionably stand in such a position of industrial strength that it could even welcome the loss of many industries for it could always turn to other industries in which by dint of national resources and industrial aptitudes it could afford to laugh at all foreign competition and when such industries were large and numerous or both, they might easily absorb all and more than all the labour which might have been driven from such ousted industries as had gone down before the foreigner. The last state of that country would be better than the first. In its first state, it was, economically speaking, misdirecting its labour into channels much better in the interests of all concerned left to the foreigner. In its last state, it would have concentrated its labour upon those industries where it could work with maximum efficiency and without any fear that employment might fail. Such was the position of this country as regarded by Cobden. The free trade policy was undoubtedly, in his eyes, not only a policy of plenty, but a policy of employment. His critics said that his movement was a middle class movement, a manufacturer's movement not a workingman's movement they even affirmed that his zeal for free trade in corn was a plan for lowering wages by cheapening food this criticism will not stand cobden's appeal may have been mainly addressed to the middle classes as was natural under the existing franchise but the benefits were not to be limited to them for apart altogether from the fact already touched upon that cobden believed that the price of food would be well maintained he was convinced if he was convinced of anything that free trade would increase employment to an enormous extent so much so that his belief that the price of corn would be well maintained owing to an ever-increasing demand may be regarded as a measure of the confidence he felt that free trade was the sure path to employment but then of course The situation has changed since Cobden's day. Rivals have come of age. An industrial revolution has passed over other countries as well as over England, and for various reasons which we need not specify, the competition of the foreigner in home markets has become more acute than Cobden could foresee. Hence these alarms lest employment may fail, and the recrudescence, though in changed guise, of questions which cobden believed he had laid for ever is england as a matter of fact still in the position of such industrial and commercial strength that she can afford to laugh at all competition and even regard the downfall of some of her industries as a blessing in disguise are her industries so thriving as to be likely to absorb and to continue to absorb whatever labour may be displaced by foreign competition in home markets, such are the issues that have once more been forced to the front by the changing conditions of national life. Nor is it possible to wish that they had not been raised. Not only have they breathed a new vitality into Cobdenism, they have also helped to define more unmistakably the Cobdenite position for it is not the distinctive characteristic of the Cobdenite that his answer to these questions is a yes in contradiction of a protectionist no. His unwavering position, if he hold fast to his orthodoxy, is that even if the answer were no, the free trade policy is not to be altered. Recourse to protection would make a bad situation worse, and consolation would lie in the reflection that if it must needs be that employment fail the labour displaced can move to other lands there to find the work and wages denied it in its own it is here that the believers in nationality can no longer follow they contemplate the contingency with dismay to them emigration of labour on any considerable scale appears a symptom of political as well as of economic decadence. To them it would mean a loss of loyal citizens and a transfer of them possibly to rival nations, a transfer in the first instance of their industrial efficiency, but in due course also of their political allegiance. Nor could Cobdenite consolations avail here, no economic gain however great to the individual workmen or to the world at large could satisfy these champions of nationality if it left the nation politically weaker hence the peculiar anxiety with which possible failure of employment is regarded by those to whom national strength has become a paramount object their fear is not economic only it is political and it is this fear and not merely their apprehensions for the future of industry that has led some of them to avow their readiness to meet possible failure of employment by a policy that is no longer cobdenite free trade such persons however though at one in their readiness to depart from cobdenism may divide into two classes the one class consists of those who are convinced that it is not beyond the wit of man to devise a fiscal policy which will secure an industrial prosperity such as persistence in free trade could never bring thereby averting that failure of employment which in their view free trade cannot obviate to these free trade is no longer the best policy even for industry but not all who are ready to depart from free trade need be of this persuasion there are others who though cobdenite enough to hold that free trade may still remain the best policy for trade are frankly prepared to dissent from the further cobdenite maxim that what is best for trade must needs be best for the nation such seems to be the significance of the suggestion that it might be far-sighted wisdom in a nation or empire to face some economic sacrifice if by this it could safeguard its political strength, unity, and destinies. This, to be sure, is a policy that would call for not a little proof. To Cobden, as we have seen, it seemed all but axiomatic, that when a country has been industrialized and commercialized to the core, no policy that involved economic sacrifice could make for genuine political strength. It may be that in this he was mistaken he was not infallible. His forecasts were sometimes false. But at any rate his arguments stand written in his life and above all in his speeches. Let those answer him who can. 2. Non-intervention. It is not possible to do full justice to Cobden's policy of trade till we see it linked, as in his mind it was indissolubly linked, with his policy of peace for though in the order of his thought trade is the central fact and peace is urged for the sake of trade rather than otherwise the two things so interact that they are but two aspects of one policy cobden's apostleship of peace does not rest solely on economic grounds war except for defence was to him a sin and a crime a brutalizer of the masses a multitudinous immorality a damnable trade neither he nor bright hesitates to invoke religion and morality against it indeed it is precisely the combination of this spiritual appeal with common sense a powerful alliance that is one of the secrets of their influence yet cobden's arguments are essentially economic i thank god he once said we live in a time when it is impossible for englishmen ever to make war profitable this was the thought that was uppermost in his mind and in it lies the pith of his case a case which is surely one of the strongest indictments of war ever penned in certain aspects the economic argument against war is of the easiest it is obvious that war misdirects wealth and labour into work that is to say the least unproductive for though dockyards and arsenals produce much their products are not instruments of production these serve their purpose and in time wear out and meanwhile the world is none the better for them in its ceaseless struggle against the inexorable perishability of wealth the inventions of war are astonishing and its energies prodigious often heroic but in the long run they all mean one thing the diversion of material resources away from channels in which they not only produce but help further production, into channels in which they serve a contrary purpose. And as this voracious, economically barren consumption in armaments has to be made good, the sequel is the inevitable taxation, which hangs like a millstone round the neck of productive labour and enterprise, not merely the increased taxation while war is going on, but the permanent taxation necessary to meet the interest on debt, which in a great war however successful mounts up by leaps and bounds armies and navies are doubtless necessary to enable us to pursue our peaceful industries and commerce so far they may even be regarded as an essential part of the great organism of production but this does not alter the fact that war debts and the taxation they drag in their train all go in support of men and establishments which do not produce commodities which we can utilize in further wealth production or with which as articles of commerce we can purchase commodities from other lands a battleship is a marvel of enterprise design and labor but a battleship is not an atlantic liner which leaves the stocks to become a commercial asset and an instrument for international trade it needs no argument surely to demonstrate that if instead of one battleship a nation were so happily situated that it could put on the sea two liners it would industrially and commercially be the gainer now of course cobden was not so fatuous as to suppose that we could dispense with an army and a fleet he was a practical man but this did not prevent him from seeing and from saying that expenditure upon armaments And still more, the employment of them in war was altogether grievous and beyond certain limits a flagitious waste of resources. Nay, it was worse than waste at an epoch when, as he read the signs of the times, every industrial nation was called upon to gird its loins, to husband its resources, to increase its production, to push its trade, and to enter that one true fight in which even the Quaker can participate the fight for markets with its actual and still more with its coming rivals nor did the evil end here for war and menaces of war and even armed peace rear ever a new barriers between nation and nation more than ever estranging and postpone the day of that peaceful international division of labour under which as cobden hoped the nations were to benefit each other by the freest interchange of commodities in other words there were two things which in cobden's scheme of life could not fuse free trade and war and as free trade had in his view become a necessity of national existence war must be made to cease at peril of national misery and impoverishment we must bear these considerations in mind if we are to understand the vituperation which cobden pours on the doctrine that trade follows the flag and as the inscription on chatham's monument has it can be made to flourish by war the historical question here must not detain us let us leave it to the historians to decide whether trade has or has not as a matter of fact followed the flag it was not with this historical question nor with chatham and his policy that cobden was primarily concerned nor need we speculate as to what line cobden would have taken had he been confronted with the question what is to be done should rival powers annex or dominate spheres of influence in order to monopolize markets heretofore neutral for this was less a matter of practical politics in his day it is enough to take his vehement assertion that trade does not follow the flag as simply his way of affirming that under the new dispensation Trade was becoming so vast and so irresistible a force that it was getting quite beyond the powers of armaments to control it. The attempt to make trade flourish by war, the policy of the cudgel, was in his eyes not only wicked but futile. Was it not a fact, the sort of fact he gloried in, that the calico-printers of England were undersold under the very guns of Gibraltar? so powerless were our cannon to open a single market for if he was convinced of anything it was that the time was past for dragooning the world into taking a single chattel that was the wrong way of going to work because it was apart from all other considerations the impracticable way the thing could not be done and it was impracticable because the nations of the world were as he thought discovering that more excellent way, the way of cheapness. It was to this he pinned his faith. It was this that was his flag, the one flag which in the long run trade was sure to follow. Hence his passionate and unqualified denunciation of all armed intervention, whatever. Convinced that industry and commerce had become the dominating forces in national and international life, convinced that war works havoc with industry and commerce by its deadly effects alike on cheap production and on easy interchange of commodities he took his stand as an absolute non-interventionist not a ship not a man will he consent to send not a farthing will he consent to vote for intervention under any contingencies no matter what our sympathies may be and cobden himself had strong sympathies no matter though freedom in foreign lands be trampled underfoot no matter that atrocities may outrage the moral sense of the world the worst that tyrannical governments may do to their subjects or strong nations to weak ones will never justify a declaration of war by other intervening nations for defence a country may do much turn itself into a camp if that be necessary But for all that goes beyond bare defence, it must stand by and wait the event, no matter what it may see, feel, or think. End of section 11